glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. And my name is Marshall. What's up, Marshall? I don't know. How's your day been? It's been okay. I had to walk in the rain. Were you singing in the rain? Or just walking? I was not. You were not? I was listening to Ancient Roman History podcast in my ears in the rain. You should have tried singing in the rain. I hear it's a glorious feeling. Well, it's true. Is that is that Mary Poppins? What's, Mar- what's singing no. in the rain? Singing in the rain is its own movie, isn't it? I don't know. Dude, I was born in 1990. At 1890, like you. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Tim's only like 10 years older than I am. Singing in the Rain, romantic musical. Okay. 1952. All right. Well, there you go. That doesn't mean that I'm old. It just means that I'm more cultured and more equipped to do a history podcast. <laughs> yeah, if we were doing the history of like cinema. Or anything. Okay. <laughs> this is this is great. It's, it's just a little chopping up at Marshall to get us going. Yeah, no, that's how we get that's how we get the fire brewing. All right, well, let's stoke the fire. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was probably <laughs> that was a bad lead in. That was an unintentional. Oh no, bad lead in. No, it was great to Keep John it. Huss. Oh man, it is, it is. Um, but as always, Tim, you skipped right over the part where I say all the cool things that are happening. In the time period that we're covering. In well, this you episode. don't have cool things in the show notes. You I, need if, when you got cool things. Just I was, put cool things in the show notes. It's me, Tim. I always got cool things. Is that no? Okay, no. whatever. So here we go. So we're covering essentially the the first half of the 15th century. So found some cool things. Um, in 1408, we get the last recorded event of the Norse settlement in Greenland. So Vikings had settled in Greenland in like the 900s. Mm-hmm. And had somehow eked out an existence in Greenland. I'm not entirely sure how. It's not the most uh, hospitable of places. But a wedding in 1408 is the last recorded event from that time period. And then kind of just ends, kind of fizzles out. It's a tough place. Yeah. Not the kind of place you think of for a wedding venue. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, actually, last week, I think I mentioned, I might have mentioned this, that like there had been this nice little warm period Mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages, and then it had ended with kind of what they called the Little Ice Age. And so it could very well be that, you know, that that little bit of warm weather that they were enjoying just enough to grow a few crops might have been done away with around this time. Yeah. In 1420, the Forbidden City, that giant palace complex in Beijing was built. Ah, I've been. Have you really? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I'd love to go to China. I'm just not sure if I've posted anything on Facebook over the last few years that might prevent me from going. But I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Yeah, it would be... <laughs> I, I was I was a little suspicious of when I was applying for my visa because my current occupation was missionary. <laughs> they're, and, not, they're not huge fans of that. And I, th- I thought, you know, I have... I was living overseas as a missionary, mm. but um, yeah. Here's another one that has a connection to some of your missions history. Uh, Pachacuti founds the Incan Empire and builds Machu Picchu around 1450. All right, so here's the deal. People okay. all the time are like, oh, Peru, you were a missionary in Peru. I've been to Peru. Machu Picchu is awesome, isn't it? Never been. Oh, no. Never got to go. I live there. Here's the difference. When you go to tour... 
you got time to do that kind of stuff. When you live in a place, you don't always have time to do that sort of thing. So we get there, you spend the first bit just settling in. By the time we got settled in, Lindsay was pregnant with Analia. And in our first trimester, we weren't traveling anywhere because she was always sick. Fair enough. And then second trimester was really busy and we were working. Uh, and then Analia was born. You can't travel up to Machu Picchu in a third trimester. That's a bad call. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and so Analia was born. You don't take a newborn to Machu Picchu. Never made it. Ugh. And I blame Analia. <laughs> Bitter about it. And I remind her <laughs> daily. I don't, actually. I've uh, never said that before. I, it's not even true. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes things just come out of my mouth and I don't know why. So around this time, a little north of the Incan Empire, under the rule of Montezuma, the Aztecs become the dominant power in Mesoamerica, which is like Mexico and Central America. They mm-hmm. will not be the dominant power for very long, unfortunately for them. Uh, it's a very uh, narrow window that they get to enjoy on, on top. So Montezuma. Hmm. The, you can't drink the water in Mexico. Yeah, I know. And when when the Europeans come in and conquer Montezuma, they find out that you can't drink the water in Mexico. And the uh, the issue that comes with drinking the water in Mexico is no- known as, to this day, Montezuma's Revenge. It's true. That in his death, he cursed the water. And that's why tourists have to buy bottled water. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Back over in Europe, we're getting into the era of the Renaissance. And we've kind of touched on it in recent episodes, so we don't have to kind of belabor it too long. But just higher learning, developments in art. This is when, you know, art starts actually looking like the things they're trying to depict. You know, through the Middle Ages, they weren't weren't the the greatest at accurate representation of whatever it was. It wasn't even the goal. True. Yeah, so there true. were there were rules around the art to make it what it was, mm-hmm. right? So the the goal wasn't realism, right? And and there were religious associations and laws around mm-hmm. medieval art mm-hmm. and why it would be depicted. I mean, it's it's painting; it's two dimensional, but it needed to be depicted as two dimensional. Right. 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 So that begins to change. Architecture begins to change. A whole lot of things begin to change. The uh, foundations of the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Leonardo and Raphael and Donatello and Michelangelo. Wow, I can remember all four. Nice. Don't ask me which colors respond to which, but that's whatever. Um, and then we get in the as early as the 15th century, the rise of what is called modern English. It won't seem like modern English to those of us. but Middle English? No, modern English. Shakespeare is technically modern English. So early English is everything up to the Normans. Middle English is from the Normans until the 15th century. And then everything beyond that is technically modern English. Uh, Again, obviously that is a relative term because try reading Canterbury Tales in the original. You're going to be hard pressed to follow along. Uh, Shakespeare's may be a little bit easier, but Shakespeare's still like over 100 years away from what we're talking about today. So in any case, I guess this is when English becomes like somewhat sort of recognizable to us. 
but because before that, it's essentially a different language. Yeah, it becomes the kind of thing that you could work your way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's what I've got. That's what I've got. Cool stuff. So now we can talk As about... As you declared it would be. John Hughes. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. Yeah. So so with John Hughes, we get, we're get we getting to a, a period in church history we call like the pre-Reformation, proto-Reformation, other suffixes, prefixes that start with the letter P, Reformation. Um, we've already talked about certain groups like the Waldensians who were in southern France. Uh, we talked about Wycliffe last week and the Lollards in England. And they all held, these different groups held the views that were strikingly similar to the later reformers. Still, we're technically, even today, we're technically not in the official reformation. Mm-hmm. But there's a bunch of these individuals who are coming up and making their mark. And probably the most significant of this century is John Hus. So here's the thing to be gleaned from this concept of the proto-reformation. These forerunners of the Reformation. Mm. What it shows us is that the Reformation is not a collective of people seeking political gain. Right. Or societal gain. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that is the counterpoint. And when we oh, when we get into the Spanish Inquisition, I'm going to get spicy. Mm. I'm just warning you now. That's okay. Uh, but, but that is the, that is the counter point to the Reformation is that these people were just using a different breed of Christianity to create a different breed of power, Mm. uh, in society. And this proves that's not the case. Oh, no, no, no. The things that, the things that they're arguing for purity within the practice of the faith are things that have been argued for now or, or by the time it comes for centuries yeah. by disconnected groups who have given themselves not to the authority of the church, but to scripture. Mm-hmm. And this is why the authority of the church as inspired is so important to the Catholic church, mm-hmm. right? Because they can say heresy is a divergence from the tradition of the church. And when people say, but it's not a divergent from the scripture, they can say it doesn't matter. Right. The authority is in the church, not in the word. This is why sola scriptura is a thing even before Martin Luther names it. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting that you have these different pockets kind of popping up where it's very similar arguments against the Roman teaching of the day. Right. Right. Independent people. So we've talked about people already in France. We've talked about people in England. Now we're talking to someone um, who was in Bohemia. We're going to talk about someone in Italy, like just like next door to Rome next week. They're popping up all over the place. And so it's Mm -hmm. not like one day Luther wakes up and he has this completely original idea that no one's ever thought of before. Right. These are the types of things that were stirring and brewing for a long time. So John was born around 1372. They're not sure exactly because he was born to a poor family. And he lived in what was then referred to as Bohemia, which was part of the Holy Roman Empire. Today, we'd recognize it as part of the Czech Republic. And at the age of 10, John was sent to go live in a monastery. And we don't know why. 
Some people say it's because his father died. Others say he was already such a devout little boy in his faith. Uh, I don't know. He was just ready. I doubt it. No, it's likely because they were poor. The Wonderkin. <laughs> he was he was probably sent to live there because he was poor. In fact, my, my own great-grandfather, and this is much more recently, growing up uh, French-Canadian in Manitoba, part of a big family. He was a problem child. They didn't have a lot of money. It was during the Depression. They sent him to go live in a monastery, him and his brother to live at the monastery for a number of years because they, they could not afford to feed them. And mm-hmm. they were more troubled than they were worth, and they figured the nuns and priests could straighten them out. So Yeah, I, I have a friend my age who grew up that way. Interesting. Uh, wow. it, was, it was kind of his, my understanding is it was kind of his family's way of adopting him out without actually putting him up for adoption. Wow. Just send him off to the monastery, and uh, when he's old enough to take care of himself, he can come back. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But at the monastery, this young boy impresses his teachers, especially since he's he's from a poor upbringing. And so they eventually send him as a teenager to study at the University of Prague. And he earns a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree by the time he's 25. And so at that point, he begins teaching at the university. And on multiple occasions, he is publicly defending the positions of John Wycliffe, one of the guys we talked about last week. Who was? Who was? Put a, to death. For his position. <laughs> no, he was posthumously called a heretic. They dug him well, up and okay, burned yeah. his... <laughs> yeah, but he was graciously killed by God yeah, but, so that he could avoid those things. I yeah, exactly, yeah. And in the eyes of the Catholic Church at the time, the fate that they did by burning his body and scattering his ashes in the river was worse than if they had killed him in their kind of spiritual understanding of the afterlife. Um, but in fact, John Hughes was so influenced by Wycliffe that... He, even though the Englishman's writings were banned by the church, he starts translating them into the Czech language and distributing them amongst the people. So he's a bit of a Wycliffe fanboy. Yeah, and, and quite the rebel. Oh, yeah. You don't, this is something that's not to be done. When it's, if something's banned by the church, it's, they mean business, right? And right. Uh, so for him to procure these documents, to translate these documents, and then to propagate them, yeah, he's he's playing with fire. Oh shoot! <laughs> <laughs> Puns ex- not intended. Oh man, because that would that that would be in poor taste. It, it would be in poor taste. I, yeah. li- I realized I realized it as a but it is enough. part of part of the idiomatic portion of the English language that is hard to avoid. Yeah, yeah. And so, in spite of his provocative views, he's promoted to be the dean of philosophy and then the rector of the university, who was kind of head of the university, all before he even turns 30. And he becomes a preacher at the local chapel. And in his sermons, he criticizes he criticizes the conduct of the bishops and their lifestyle, right? That of the bishops, that of the cardinals, that of even the pope, saying their worldly lifestyles are accumulating wealth and power for themselves, um, and this is wrong. And so in spite of going after the pope, uh, the local ar- archbishop, actually tolerates him for a while because he likes him. He just thinks this John Hughes guy is great. And even if he kind of calls him out sometimes, he, he tolerates him. Yeah. But then the Pope steps in and kind of forces that bishop to to shut him up. Yeah, this happens a couple of times throughout church history mm-hmm. where you, you have these guys that are just good guys. They, they have a, a viewpoint that will not be tolerated. But they themselves are likable enough that even 
even those people who come against them struggle with that, which fascinatingly enough is a charge in scripture, right? Right. Where we are told in a couple of different occasions by Peter and Paul and, and Jesus that we are to pray for those who persecute us. And even, even in that, that when they accuse us, they have less to stand on or, or they make become worshipers themselves, but to live at peace so much as we can with other people. Mm. And, uh, John finds favor, but not with a big enough wig. No, unfortunately for for him. Yeah, so a few years later, during this time, this is still when that whole papal schism is going on, right? So John Hughes and his faction at the university, they take a bit of a neutral position. So they're not openly supporting the Pope in Rome, who we'll just refer to as Greg. They're They're not in favor of Greg, and they're not in favor of the Pope in Avignon, who we can just refer to as Benny. Because at this point, it's like everybody, it's the, the Pope name, it's like Gregory the 22nd and Alexander right. the 19th, and it's just crazy. So they did, however, end up later giving allegiance to a third Pope. At this point, there's a third option that pops up. Why not? His name's Alex. So they're all, they're all for Pope Alex, and they're not for Pope Greg, and they're not for Pope Benny. But unfortunately for Hughes, this third Pope hates Wycliffe. And... Because of this, further bans his writings. I don't know how you can ban something that's already banned, but to further ban it, just, yeah, just like to say it again, extra not good. Yeah. Um, and they he actually excommunicates Hus and his followers. And Pope Alex dies, and his successor, Pope John, John the twenty third, just to give you a sense of how original these pope names are, decides to declare another crusade for the Holy Land. No. No, he decides to declare a crusade against fellow Christians in Naples because they're protecting Pope Greg. And Pope John hates Pope Greg. And so... And and this is where the word crusade just becomes the baptism of war. That's all it is. Yeah. It's a special military operation. Yeah, this is not to, like, redeem the Holy Land or to rescue persecuted Christians. This is to go cut the heads off other Christians because they of a like, rival Pope. Yeah. Because they hate, they just hate Greg. They can't handle him. So crusades aren't cheap. So how, how does the church raise money quickly? Sell some indulgences. <laughs> what's yeah. a, what's an indulgence, Tim? Why don't you tell us what an so, indulgence is? So here's the thing. Sometimes, sometimes I have people come to me who, who aren't a part of our church or really, actively i would argue maybe any church and and they're like oh you're the pastor what am i supposed to call you right and like randomly i can be called like father (laughs) and things like that and uh i i don't like it uh but i never say anything about it i just let it go and and i've had i've had like uh repair guys air conditioner repair guys and stuff come in be like hey so can I get a blessing before you go? No way. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, and the idea is <laughs> if I can pray, sure. Sure. But if Tim prays, mm. Mm, mm. it gets, it gets <laughs> it's the overnight delivery, right? It, it's not sort of normal postage. It's express postage. Right. And it goes straight to the door. And 
and God listens to that one. And so the idea is, can you confess your sins? Sure you can. But if you confess them to the priests, Mm. then it really counts. Yeah. That's what causes it to count now, right? And, and you know, he's, he's done work to become a priest. Mm-hmm. And just like any other profession, his time and credentials have value. Sure. And you need to use those services. And so what are they worth to you? And at this point, these prayers and confessions literally go on sale. Yeah, yeah. And it literally becomes, I understand you want to confess your sins before God, mm-hmm. which we have already, as a power grab, told you has to come through us. Yep. Right? We will pray that on your behalf. Uh, it doesn't matter that that's not in Scripture because they're holding the Bible in a dead language anyway, mm-hmm. so no one can read it, and they're putting to death those people who try to <laughs> write the Bible in common tongue. Right. And so they hold this idea over people. You, you confessing your sin does nothing. You have to give it to me. Mm-hmm. My suspicion is this way we know what's going on in the community. We know who's up to what and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And we wield this power over them mm-hmm. in knowing something about them. Well, and, and then they can set the price and say, okay, so for this particular sin to right. be forgiven, it will cost you this amount of money. Yeah, and, and so whereas we normally know it is to someone like, oh, well, that thing that you did is going to cost you 20 Hail Marys. Right. Right? They're like, no, it's going to cost you 20 bucks. <laughs> right? <laughs> Actual exchange of cash for prayers. Yeah. Just like Peter did. Yeah. I thought you were going to let that go. I'm glad you left. So and this is this is actually comes from a quote from the the Roman Catholic Catechism which is in its current form today. Talk in in regards to this idea of indulgences, which admittedly isn't applied the same way. It talks about how this is this is in regards to limiting the temporal punishment that comes from sin. Um, even if that sin has technically already been forgiven by Christ, there's this is to remove the, the punishment of it. And it says that uh, this has to happen through the church, which as the minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and of all the saints. So they are the ones who allow Christ's mercy and grace, his satisfaction, uh, to either be applied or not be applied. They can withhold it or allow it to go. Right, so Christ manufactures the forgiveness, mm-hmm. the grace and the mercy. Mm-hmm. They are the distributors. Yes. Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. distribution yep. agencies also charge a price. It's yeah. it's middleman. And they own a monopoly in their mind on the grace of Jesus Christ. Right. It it, it is middleman logistics mm-hmm. that you would recognize from any business. And I Can you imagine, Marshall, can you imagine someone coming up to you after church and saying, hey, uh, not doing well, I just found out I have cancer. Mm. Can you pray for me? And you say, it'd be $10. (laughs) 
right? Like that's the equivalent. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was talking with Hesed last night about about this, and we were talking about the fact that we're coming up very quickly on the Reformation and how that's going to be a, a time when we really start reminding people about the podcast, hey, this is really a great time to tune in because this is a huge shift in the church that's a radical shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and his point was to say, you got to do that soon because it's hard to understand how important the Reformation is without understanding well how poorly things were going. Yeah. And and those who those who are like, oh well, the Catholic Church was doing its thing and then a couple of people had some theological differences and we're kind of in that camp and so that's kind of where that church split happened. That is way 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 underselling. Mm-hmm. What is ta- about to take place. Yeah. And and the only way you can undersell that is to not recognize how gross these indulgences and inquisitions are Mm -hmm. and these papal schisms and all of these things that are so ungodly that it was necessary there was no other choice right but to call for massive reforms that eventually rock the church Mm um and and so with that i I just want to say Every statement from here on out, just throw an exclamation point on the end of it because it's that big of a deal. It yeah. really does matter to yeah. that extent. Yeah. And in that time, John Hughes was particularly upset. I mean, he made it known. He says, not only is it wrong for the Pope to take up his sword in the name of Christ, that's wrong. And not only is it wrong to, uh, for the forgiveness of sins to come through paying money, but then to use the money that you're extorting from people for the forgiveness of their sins to fund your unholy crusade is just just terrible, right? And so he just like he puts all those pieces together and he's saying this publicly and he because he's an influential guy, they don't they can't really go after him right away. But some people who are who believe, who hear him and agree with him, um, kind of lower class people, they are publicly saying, "Yeah, these indulgences they're, they're wrong," mm-hmm. and so they're publicly beheaded for just simply saying indulgences are are wrong. It's not the way to be forgiven. So this is how serious it's getting in in Bohemia. Um, things start getting out of hand. So a council is called where John and his followers are ordered to affirm certain theological statements. And, you know, they're, they're told, okay, you have to affirm these things. And so, you know, they're told, you need to say that you will obey the Catholic Church. And so John Hughes is like, sure, I'll say that as long as I can add so far as any pious Christian is bound. Right. And they're like, well, no, that's not, that's not what we're saying. We're saying you obey the Roman Catholic Church, period. Right. No, n- nothing else. That is how it works. That is all it is. And so... The people are beginning to support Hughes more and more, and the Roman Church essentially decides to shut down the churches of Prague. They they actually they actually lay out um, a temporary closure. They're saying no one in this town is allowed to uh, receive the sacraments, which again under Roman Catholic doctrine is that's withholding the grace from right. people. If anyone gets sick and dies, yeah, between uh, now and then. Mm-hmm. It's on John. Yeah, they're they're kind of they're in their minds, anyways. They're putting the the eternal destiny of an entire city um, on the line. It's blackmail. 
Yeah, it really is. It's it's blackmail with their eternal destiny in their minds. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. that is not actually. We say obviously. I, I for our listener who I don't think is Catholic, mm-hmm. I would be shocked to find out that they're Catholic. I doubt we have any by this point. But uh, according to their teaching, if this is how one comes to salvation, then this is extortion. It's blackmail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Hughes does kind of feel bad for this this situation that he's putting his countrymen in and the pressure that's being put on the city. So he ends up fleeing to the countryside and kind of traveling around. And he realizes that many of the priests in these small town and villages are severely uneducated. Their, their Latin is terrible. They can barely, it'd be like, it'd be like if people who grew up in the local school system here who have a taste of French, understand a few words of French can, can put some basic phrases together were tasked with leading the worship for their local community in a language that they barely, barely understand. So here's my analogy for it. You ready for this? Okay. If if I gave you the task of leading a church Christmas service in Spanish, you wouldn't be able to do it. No. But you could do Feliz Navidad. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because you only need enough language to execute the moment. Sure. And I could give you Feliz Navidad. You could do that. And then we could move on and you just faked your way through it. Yeah. So the the necessity of, of Latin, of the understanding of the writings of the church fathers and the scriptures that they're actually leading is limited to what they need to execute mm-hmm. this. It's the difference between education and training. Right. Right? A lot of times you hear young people, this is... This is my moment of taking on the old man hat. You hear a lot of young people complain about going to school and all these things that they've got to learn that aren't directly tied to what it is that they want to graduate and be able to do. And they think of it as a money grab or a waste of their time. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between education and training. Mm -hmm. Training says this is how you execute that task. Education says let's expand your mind so that you not only have the capacity to execute a task but you also have the capacity to think in and around that task right and so these men are trained Mm -hmm. in latin but they're not educated Mm -hmm. yeah so what he does to resolve this issue he begins writing and circulating books on the basics of the christian faith in the czech language so that these these you know country priests could actually for the first time in some instances really wrap their minds around the core tenets of the Christian faith in a way that they could, they could understand. Um, and what's, he writes on a number of issues. One of the, one of the ones he gets in most trouble about in this, in this writing is in regards to ecclesiology, which ecclesiology is essentially just the theology of the church. And Mm -hmm. he essentially just makes a statement that look, the church, when we talk about the church, we're not just primarily talking about the clergy. Right. right. There, there were writings floating around that like the head of the church was the pope and the body was the cardinals. That that was the that was the message being sent throughout, um, you know, th- this the the European Roman Catholic Church, which and, is interesting because there was also a book being circulated at the time and prior that said the head of the church is Christ. <laughs> yeah. But no one can read that book. So it doesn't because matter. it's in Latin. Exactly. So the Holy Roman Emperor. 
who is essentially just kind of the the king of Germany and the surrounding areas, calls a council at a place called Constance in 1414. And he wanted to kind of resolve a bunch of issues um, that were kind of brought on by all these things going on. And and John Hughes agrees to go because he was promised safe conduct. John, mm-hmm. you show up, you'll be fine. We'll treat you fairly. Just show up so we can we can talk this thing out. And and to be fair, he was granted safe conduct for like the first week. Yeah. <laughs> for the first week, he's allowed to stay wherever he wants to stay. Yeah, he's yeah. not under any sort of arrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but only for the first week. Yeah. So he ends up being imprisoned by church officials. And the Holy Roman Emperor is actually upset initially. He's like, guys. I made a promise. I have to keep my promise. I said he'd be kept safe. And they're like, oh, no, no, don't worry, Mr. Holy Roman Empire. You don't have to keep promises you make to heretics. <laughs> and it's like, wait, wait, wait. We haven't even had the trial yet. <laughs> but whatever. That was enough to kind of resolve it. So he ends up spending months in imprisonment before he faces a trial. And he's malnourished and maltreated, obviously. Right. Um, and he's called to renounce his views. And, and so he, in response, he says, look, if you can convince me from Scripture that I'm wrong in anything that I've said or written, I'll, I'll renounce it. I'll recant it right now. But again, that's not the basis. That's not the standard right. by which he's being tried. He's not being tried according to Scripture. He's being tried according to church tradition. Right, and we would see that as a, an oof kind of moment, right? Like that's the, that's the kind of moment that, as happens in high-profile court cases, ends up getting recorded and thrown across all kinds of social media so that everyone can be like, ooh, ooh, got him, right? It it doesn't even resonate with him. No. Because like you said, it, it's just not the basis of truth. Mm-hmm. And so whether or not it says it to be somewhat presumptuous, I'll admit that, there's a chance that the people trying him are learned enough in the traditions of the church to say, I can prove that this goes against the teachings of the church, but not learn it enough in the scripture to be able to talk about it one way or the other. But nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. So he's accused of heresy. Um, he is declared a heretic. He's brought into a church and they strip him of the priestly vestments and they put this paper hat on him, mm-hmm. which, uh, which has a word on it, which declares him to be an arch heretic. And they lead him to the stake. And just before his execution, he says something. He says, uh, you may kill a weak goose. And to, to get this, his last name, Hoose, is the Czech word for goose. So he says, so his last name means goose. So he's like, you may kill a weak goose, but more powerful birds, eagles, and falcons will come after me. Yeah, it's going to happen. That preaches. <laughs> uh, and, and he also prays for... Those who are against him. Yeah, he does. He takes a moment in a very Stephen, a very mm-hmm. Jesus kind of way and yeah. says, forgive them, Father. They know what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's burned at the stake. And after he's burned at the stake, his ashes are thrown into the Rhine, the river, um, which again is just a way of making sure that nobody venerates his his bones. Nobody can uh, visit his um, burial site and that, you know, it's supposed to somehow prevent the resurrection somehow. But, you know, we've already talked about how ridiculous that, that notion is. Back in Bohemia, though, this news that John Hughes was burned at the stake was not taken well. 
and support for Hughes' teachings and opposition to the Roman Church continued to grow and grow and grow. And so Sigismund, who is the Holy Roman Emperor at this, this point, obtains permission from the Pope to launch a crusade, another crusade, in Bohemia. Against infidels? No. No, to exterminate the Hussites, or those who were following John Hughes. Um, but he greatly underestimated how much momentum this movement had. The, his crusade failed, as did four more papal crusades against the followers of John Hughes. <laughs> these, uh, these, these Czech Republic proto-Protestants uh, were not going to allow themselves to be massacred. Yeah, they were happen. fighters. Yeah. Yeah, and soldiers from across Europe just kept coming to try and stomp out these bohemian heretics and again and again they got beat. And the army, these were just regular people. These weren't primarily soldiers. These were just poor men and women, lots of women they said. So what they did is they changed their tactics. They're like, "Well, okay, a a 90-pound Czech peasant woman who's been underfed her whole life isn't going to swing a battle axe." but we can put a crossbow in her hands. Yeah. And so they're using crossbows and early firearms they, because you don't need a lot of training mm -hmm. and you don't need a lot of strength to just point and shoot. Um, and they start using these interesting things called wagon forts where they use wagons to set up barricades in the moment to stop cavalry charges from the better equipped princes and lords who are coming after them. And they just keep beating them over and over and over again. Um, eventually, the Roman church has to kind of make peace with them. So they make peace with the more moderate faction. Like this is well over a decade later, right? Five five failed crusades. Um, and essentially it ends with allowing the Hussites to practice their own variation of the faith within their lands. Yeah, and the thing the thing that we the one thing that I want to draw into check and, and I I presume that whoever's listening doesn't need this check. Mm -hmm. But I just want to say it instead. Mm -hmm. To this point, every time we've used the word heretic, it's a mislabel. Yeah. They're not actually heretics. It's a mislabel. Mm -hmm. In fact, the church is practicing heresy. Yes. And so it is the irony of all ironies that the church, the Roman church, would be calling these people heretics. Mm-hmm. The goal of the Roman church is not truth. The goal of the Roman church is to squash any opposition and to stand in absolute authority. Yeah. Uh, in, in a way that is, as we've seen previously, not only authority over the people, but authority over the authorities of the people. Mm. And they... It gets under my skin. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. So the, the Hussites who survive all of these crusades are given a certain measure of freedom to worship their own way. Um, kind of, they're kind of, yeah, they're allowed to kind of do their little thing over there as long as you don't spread it, as long as you don't cause waves because the Roman church just can't squash them. Which is, which is such an interesting allowance. I know. <laughs> right? Like, are they heretics or not? Well, no, <laughs> what I was going to say, it's interesting... To allow someone who has proven themselves to be stronger than you to continue doing their thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> to just, to, d <laughs> it's like stepping into the ring with a guy who breaks your nose and your arm yeah. and saying, you know what? 
I think you've had enough. <laughs> and I'm going to allow you to leave now. And I'm not going to fight you anymore. <laughs> I'm going to allow you to not be approached by me anymore. <laughs> and then limping out into your corner yeah. and saying, please, someone yeah. carry me out of here. Yeah. So about 100 years later, the Hussites who are in Bohemia overwhelmingly adopt Protestantism because as soon as they, Luther and Calvin start doing their thing, they're like, oh, yeah, no. Like, yeah, we've been in this for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the party. Yeah, welcome to the party. Get ready to fight some wars. Spoiler alert. Um, let's also talk about Joan of Arc. She's not, from a theological perspective, she's not as significant as Hughes, but there, there's... There's something in the way that her story ends that I think is is maybe meaningful to help us understand the medieval Christian state as well. Yeah, I would. I agree. So Joan of Arc, um, her story takes place during the Hundred Year War. Again, I think we mentioned this at, at least one episode, maybe a couple episodes ago. The Hundred Year War that lasted longer than a hundred years. It's not going well for France. England is controlling essentially half of France, including Paris. Uh, but this young peasant girl begins having visions of the archangel Michael and other saints and is convinced that she has to go support the Dauphin. The, the Dauphin is the French crown prince, so he's mm -hmm. the heir to the throne. It's also the French word for dolphin. Fun. Which I just don't know how, why they chose, like, I'm not sure of the etymology around all that, but she, she seeks the dolphin. Uh, because the Archangel Michael told her to go wait, find Wait, wait, how old was she again? She's like 17 or something. Yeah. She's like young. Yeah, usually girls around a little earlier than that go through either a horse or a dolphin <laughs> phase. <laughs> right? I, I think more recently it would be sloths. <laughs> and manatees. Yeah, she's a little obsessed with the dolphin, that's for sure. Yeah. So initially she's refused, obviously. Like this unknown peasant girl is not going to be granted an audience with the most powerful man in the country. But through her own personal charisma and boldness and persistence, she begins to win some of the lower nobles over her, uh, over to her, and they end up escorting her to Charles. Charles the Dolphin. And the Dolphin, he's a bit skeptical at first, but he allows her to tag along. Um, because she's making a significant impact on the French army because she is claiming that, you know, the Archangel Michael and these other saints are telling her to support the French cause because now they're going to win. So now this war isn't political. Now it's a religious war and their side yes. has God on it. Right. Which is always good, I guess. You're going to fight a war. It's good to have God on your it's side. It's good for morale. It's, it's great for morale. And so, and so she travels to a number of different battlefields because there's all these different conflicts going on across France. And everywhere she goes, she's just inspiring the troops. And she's not really given a formal command at first. Um, they kind of, she's just kind of like a, a little bit of like a celebrity, you know, like she's just, she's a big deal. And, you know, she encourages everyone. Uh, when she comes, it's a novelty thing. Like yeah. this peasant girl right. in armor. Um, but eventually the Lord start taking some of her advice. Like she, she starts having some, some influence for her services. She and her entire family are, the word is ennobled. They're, they're made nobility for her services to the crown because everywhere she goes, you know, the French are having more and more success and she's turning the tide, or at least it seems as though she's turning the tide of the war. 
But eventually, while she's on a raid, she's captured by the Burgundians who sell her to the English for a significant sum of money. The English really want to get their hands on her. Because at this point, she's a good luck charm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good Right? Idea. She's she's kind of like a mascot, mm-hmm. a good luck charm. And, yeah. and that's not to diminish her no, by no. any means. Mm-hmm. It's to say the way that, we've talked about this before, the way that superstition and its religious connections worked in the medieval mind, even in this late medieval period, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the idea that if she's with us, we're going to win. Right. Because we've seen it play out on both sides, makes her a prize. Right, yeah. And I mean... The issue is that she she's not gonna she's not gonna change her allegiance over to the English. So this upsets them obviously, but they don't kill her immediately, um, and they don't decide to really treat her as you would an enemy combatant. They decide to put her on trial for heresy, and the reason they do this it, it seems ridiculous, but it makes sense. So it, the recent success of the French was seen as being divinely supported because Joan of Arc said so. So. If they executed her outright, she would become a martyr. But if they could, air quotes, prove that she was a heretic, then her words would be false, and that would significantly harm the morale of the French because this wasn't a messenger from God. It's this a was, false prophetess. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that is their, that's their tack on this. So they, they use the heresy trial to eliminate a military opponent because she had this whole spiritual ethos thing around her that was motivating the people. And that was such an important thing to the French army that they wanted to destroy that um, rather than just kill her outright. And that just gives us a glimpse into the mind of, of, of medieval warfare, of how they saw God's influence in, in, the, um, in their battles. Yeah, it's a psychological warfare. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but the trial's a foregone conclusion. Uh, the bishop was going to make sure that she was declared a heretic, and for that, she was burned at the stake. Interestingly, though, about 25 years later, Joan's mother petitions the church to reopen the case. They overturn the ruling, and Joan was posthumously readmitted to the church, I guess is how they do that, and her status of a heretic overturned, which got me to thinking. Hold on. Sorry. 400 years later... Yeah. She becomes a saint. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Her feast day is May 30th, which I think is only a few days after this episode's going to drop. So, St. Joan of Arc Day. Yeah. So, she goes from... Eat some dolphin or something on it. I don't know. Post- <laughs> it's probably illegal to get dolphin meat. I don't it know. It is. Okay. I don't know. Posthumously, she goes from heretic to saint. Yeah. Yeah. Which means they have to prove miracles mm-hmm. on her behalf. Yeah. Which, like, some of the, the turning of the battles right. was, was chosen as, you know, her proof of miracles. Uh, my thing is this. Okay, so she's declared under a church council because the bishop technically went through all the proper things. I mean, it's overturned later, but, like, but like in the Catholic mind, like, was she burning in hell for those 25 years until the church has, like, overturned it and officially readmitted her? Is was, that the beauty of purgatory maybe that's what it is when this falls into human hands Mm. when the church is responsible then purgatory allows you a couple of years after they die to decide kind of one way or the other and you can just be like oh well Mm -hmm. she just fast-tracked through purgatory 
Yeah. Um, I mean, in sainthood, she just rockets right up to the top. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. That's that's a question. What happens to her yeah. immortal state? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we don't have that problem. We don't have to wrap our minds around that problem, but I'd be curious to know what yeah. the, the Roman Catholic Church would have to say. Um, the last thing, the last kind of major issue to, to talk about this this era, kind of let's move eastwards now, is the fall of Constantinople. Rome had fallen like a thousand years before this, but all this time, the great city of the east, Byzantium or Constantinople, had stood. Mm-hmm. Until till now and but at this point that great empire was really just kind of a handful of small little territories um, but it still had with it I mean it was still a magnificent city but it still had with it this idea that we are we are Roman we are we are the leftovers from that glorious and great era there is an you know an an unending line that we can trace our way back to Constantine and this was his city and all this and this great city falls to a 21-year-old. And the walls that had defended the city for centuries, those Theodosian walls that were 60 feet high and 15 feet thick with dozens of towers that soared higher were defeated by cannons. Really, really, really big cannons. <laughs> like massive, massive cannons. There was a Hungarian engineer who wanted to was a Christian, wanted to sell his services to byzantium and they couldn't afford him so he switched sides and joined up with the turks and they build a cannon that's 27 feet long it was so heavy it had to be pulled by 60 oxen it had a crew of like, all the guys involved in like disassembling it reassembling it like uh, loading it and all these things like they figure there's hundreds of men just devoted to this one cannon uh, you could only fire it once every few hours because the bronze couldn't handle the heat and the force of it any more than that um the cannonball itself just weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds and it just would take down entire sections of the wall with a single shot it you can look it up look the cannons that took down constantinople it's crazy like it's it's nuts i don't think they made bigger cannons until world war one like it was that long before they made anything bigger these things were ridiculous anyways i nerded out about cannons long enough <laughs> the armies of the sultan enter the city and they're given free reign to loot and pillage for three days. They get three days off the leash. Would not have been a good three days to be in Constantinople. Um, when it ended, though, everyone alive could return home. And what ends up happening here is as the Eastern Empire falls to the Ottoman, em- to the Ottoman Empire, the Eastern Orthodox Church is isolated from the West. Mm-hmm. And so for centuries, they exist underneath Ottoman rule in their own little bubble. Like the majority, the majority of the churches, especially the important ones, are converted to mosques, but they still have some freedom of worship, kind of. But they don't have a Protestant Reformation. Right. And that's where, that's where the church in the East is co- going to disappear from our podcast. Yeah. Right? So all along we've... We've been less more, uh, less more, less lately. Mm-hmm. It was more at the beginning. We tried to sort of track this divided church, the church in the East versus the church in the West. The church in the East, the Greek, or- Greek Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Churches, those mm-hmm. are the Eastern Orthodox traditions uh, that we will stop talking about 
Why? Because they become so isolated. They become frozen in time. Yeah, they really do. And there's there's very little change from where they are and where they were. Yeah. And in the same way that I would say the Roman Catholic Church has changes in technicality, but even that is more change than the Eastern churches. Mm -hmm. They're going to have their schisms. They're going to end up with the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and that sort of thing. Sure, sure. Uh, But as far as if if someone misses this episode, which is hypothetical, no one no one misses an episode of this. <laughs> uh, if someone misses this episode, they may come in at some point and be like, you know what, I still have no clue what's going on in the Eastern Church mm-hmm. because you haven't talked about the Eastern Church in months. It, the yeah. history just kind of it, it's so it so separates mm-hmm. from anything that will affect our church history. Mm-hmm that it isn't really even something to talk about anymore. They become very, they're forced to become very insular because of their situation. They're allowed to exist and live, but as definitely second-class citizens, they're not allowed to evangelize. They are not allowed to speak anything that might be seen as against Islam. They couldn't carry weapons. They couldn't ride horses. They couldn't fill any important positions within, within the empire. And so for them, it's like, okay, well, with whatever we have left off, we just want to survive in our own little pockets, and we just want to preserve whatever little bit that we have. Um, And so as far as these big theological moves that are going to be happening, they're just totally, you know, outside of all of that. They've got they've got more pressing issues that you could you could argue, you know, if someone's ready to kill you, if you step out of line, that's that's a pretty pressing issue. Yeah. Um, And, And they they will. They will have some change. Oh, sure. So there, yeah. there will be a shift in the same way that the church under Constantine becomes the state church, right? Mm-hmm. That that rise of the official religion. Mm-hmm. It, it will get that shift. Mm-hmm. Um, it just takes a while. Yeah. Yeah. So the fall of Constantinople to the Muslim armies would have seemed like an an earth shattering event for Christendom. If you were there, even if you weren't Orthodox, even if you were Roman Catholic and you were living in France to hear that Constantinople had fallen would have just been seemed like massive, but in the long run, its impact would actually be dwarfed by a movement that was a long time coming and something that would change the political and religious landscape of Europe and the whole world forever. And that is the Protestant reformation. We're not going to get there next week because we have some cleaning up to do. We, you kind of dropped the hint about the Spanish Inquisition. We got to mm. talk about that. We got to talk about a few other things. But uh, the real earth-shattering moment is is coming. Yeah. And so, yeah, tune in. Tune in to get to that. Yep. Yep. And uh, invite your friends. Yeah, seriously. All right. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. See you later. Bye.